That was very sudden and abrupt. Hey, what's up, skeptics? <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I'm Jordan, and Jared is with me, back again, recovered from COVID. Almost 100% now. I'm feeling much better. So. Awesome. Glad yeah. to hear it. So today, we are going to be talking about young Earth creationists and why their model would cause Noah to burst into flames before he... I'm not sure what would get him first, if his blood would boil, if he'd like just be incinerated. I don't know. Uh, but there'd be problems. The Earth would be a giant ball of radioactive death. And uh, yeah, so it wouldn't be a good time. Uh, b- before we do that, though, before we talk about balls and death, um, let's talk about fallacies because we Today's do that here. fallacy of the day is one I've been seeing running around Twitter kind of in the wild recently. It's the base rate fallacy. Uh, so this is a fun one. It has to do with statistics and who doesn't love statistics? Everybody. Uh, so this fallacy uh, happens when you fail to take into account the general prevalence of a thing when you're talking about this, the likelihood of a thing. Um, this happens all of the time in medicine and when science reporting in general. So uh, one example of this uh, I saw recently a um, uh, statistic about half of people who die in car crashes are wearing seatbelts. It's like 51%. That proves it then, right? Seatbelts don't save lives. They don't do anything. If you're wearing a seatbelt, 50-50 shot that you're going to live. So who needs them, right? Uh, Of course, that doesn't take into account the fact doesn't take into account the fact that uh, over 90% of people driving wear seatbelts. And so if seatbelts had no effect, you'd expect the number of people dying while wearing a seatbelt, like of the people who die, how many were wearing seatbelts would be? 90%? 90%. Okay, I got it. Very good. Statistics. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So the fact that though non-seatbelt wearing people only take up 10% of the population, but are 50% of of the deaths... That shows that they're disproportionately represented in the sample of people who die not wearing a seatbelt. So you have to take into account the overall population when you're looking at statistics. The way it often is used is things like uh, for COVID, for example. Well, the majority of people who get sick or die were vaccinated. Well, but if, you know, 80 percent of people are vaccinated. Yeah, and only 10% happen. of vaccinated people get sick, then something's exactly. working here, right? <clears throat> I don't exactly. know if that's a, a right number or not, but um, right. so that's well, the base, yeah, that's the base rate fallacy. Just it, it's an easy pitfall to fall into, so that's why there are people who are paid to do statistics. <laughs> it's not easy. So, tonight's topic you're talking about the heat problem, uh, and you've mentioned young earth creationists. In case somebody doesn't know or are familiar with young earth creationists, what exactly is a young earth creationist? Great question. Uh, so a young earth creationist is a term broadly for someone who believes that the earth is young. And by young, they usually mean somewhere in the neighborhood of six to 10,000 years. And it usually applies to people in an Abrahamic religion. So in America, they're, they're typically Christian, uh, but you get similar um, claims from some sects of Judaism and Islam as well, but Abrahamic religions usually. Okay. Um, yeah. And they believe and, uh, it on the basis of Genesis. And so I imagine that the problem then comes from the um, truncated time frame that we're working <laughs> with here. Is that, 
Well, in the, yeah, so there's a lot of problems with young earth creationism. And I used to be a young earth creationist. Uh, so you can talk about them then. I, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I like to think that gives me a little bit of special empathy uh, for this group. Uh, but um, so, yeah, there, there are a ton of problems with young earth creationism. Basically, pick a field of science and there are problems. Uh, but today... The problems we're going to be talking about have to do with thermodynamics um, and also with radioactive decay. Uh, so that's kind of the problem here. And like you said, it has to do with the truncated timeline. Yep. Um, heat, uh, the rate at which you release heat is important. You know, that's why okay. if I touch this cup, it's fine. But if I touch a a hot like metal pan, it's not fine. Right. And, and from the outset, uh, this is not my area of expertise, and I'm. Uh, a layman on this subject. So my role tonight is actually just to make sure that Jordan doesn't go into the land of make, um, get so technical that people like myself can't understand it. So I might have to say, Hey, let's, uh, let's reel that back in and explain that Barney <laughs> style, please. Like, yeah. Hey Luca, make uh, nice to see you. Make sure Luca is a, another professional scientist. Who's going to keep me honest on thermodynamics. Make sure I don't mess up. Uh, Paleologos has a good point. Um, almost everyone who's ever died wasn't subscribed to him. So, therefore, therefore, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not going to tell you that subscribing to Paleologos will save your life, but it probably won't hurt, right? So, <laughs> why not? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, heat problem. Before I get into the actual problem, I think it might be helpful to back up and talk a little bit about radioactive decay, just in case. I don't know, somebody in the audience isn't intimately familiar with how radioactive decay works, just in the off chance, you know. So in the universe, there are uh, atoms that are unstable, not happy with their lot in life. Um, you've got uh, in their nucleus, which is the center bit, the thing that makes it an atom, there's protons, and if you're more than hydrogen, neutrons. Um, and uh, protons are positively charged, and neutrons are neutral, right? And so if you, as you know, if you ever tried to like mash a magnet together, positive things like like charged things don't want to touch, right? And so there's that electromagnetic force trying to force the protons away. Uh, the thing counteracting that is the strong nuclear force. You, that The specifics doesn't matter. Basically, the you can imagine that the neutrons are kind of like playing referee and, you know, give, giving the protons enough space to breathe so they don't blow apart. That's not physically what's happening, but that's good enough for conception, right? And so uh, as you go up the periodic table and get more and more protons, you need more neutrons to keep it stable. And eventually, either you'll have too many or too few neutrons and um, and you'll be unstable. Or if you once you get past a certain point, you just can't be stable. There's no stable configuration. And so uh, when you're unstable, you being this atom, uh, you want to get to stability and you do that by decaying in some way. Uh, you kick out some kind of particle and heat um, and become something new. And that process continues until the thing you turn into is stable. Hmm. I understood all that. So we're Great. good. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. With me so far. All right. So the key things there to keep in mind are that when uh, something decays, rate what radioactivity is, is the process of decay. Okay. And the rate of the activity of a sample is how many times it's decaying per second. The units are becquerels. Units don't matter. It's just how many things are destroying themselves each second. Um, and that's where the half-life comes from. You've probably heard of that. Like the half-life is how long it would take for half the sample to go away. 
you have a kilogram of uranium and then you wait a half-life, which you're going to be waiting a while because it's billions of years, uh, you'll have half the <laughs> kilogram at the end. Um, that's that, that that's all related. Yeah, okay. most people have heard Half-Life. It was a great game in the 90s, you know. It so, was. Uh, yeah. Well, so I heard. I actually have never played Half-Life. I kind of mm -hmm. missed that one, and I feel like it's too late now. <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, how does this tie into Young Earth creationism? Well, there are things that we can observe in reality that appear to have a, a re required a lot of radioactive decay to get to the point where they are today. Um, there's a lot of things that are like this. You've got some radiometric dating results where like you date a fossil or the rocks around a fossil and it says it's so many billions of years or um, and other things. One thing that my favorite thing to point to is the naturally occurring nuclear reactor at Oklo. Um, that's my favorite thing because one, it's the coolest thing to have ever happened ever. Uh, and two, because most creationists also agree that's what happened. Um, so in brief, uh, in Oklo, in Africa, there was that there's uranium mine and they were mining uranium. And it's very important to know how enriched the uranium enriched in this case means you've got two different kinds of uranium, the good kind, the physile kind and the non-physile kind. U-235 is the good kind. However much of that you have in the uranium, that's how enriched it is. Um, and in na nature, it's about 0.7%. When they dug it up at Oklo, it was less than that. Uh, by 0.6, 0.5% may not seem like a big deal, but that's a big deal because uranium goes missing, people notice, right? Yeah. Uh, and so there was some concern that like, like, like something had gone wrong. And when they investigated it, it turned out that no, the uranium from the ground was actually depleted. Um, and when they investigated it further, it appeared that uh, what had happened in the past was a natural nuclear reactor had depleted the uranium. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> So here's, uh, I'm going to show a picture to explain this because I'll take literally any opportunity to <laughs> talk about Oklo. Uh, so let me share my screen there. Uh, so nuclear reactors require a few things to work. You need uranium or some other fissile thing. We're talking uranium. It needs to be enriched to about 3%, which means 3% of the uranium is that U-235. Then you need some kind of thing to slow the neutrons down. In this case, we're going to use water. Uh, and if you put those things together, you get fission because the neutrons are bouncing around in the water. They get slowed down. They get sucked into a uranium atom, which then fissions and makes more fission. That's how that works. Okay. So uranium over time is getting less enriched because the fissile stuff decays faster than the non-fissile stuff. So over time, you're getting less of it. The curve looks like this. So you can see your enrichment over the over time is going down. All right. Wind that and back. And so fissile like, just means something that's able to have fission. fission. Okay. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's that's what I mean. I'm trying to I'm trying to, <laughs> to cut down the things that you need to know and yeah. not like go running off into other things. Okay. Yeah. So yes, fissile is the stuff that's doing the fission. Okay. Um, and so if you go backwards in time, assuming current rates, which I'll get to that in a second. Um, you get to a point where the uranium would be 3% enriched. Um, and so would have sufficient enrichment to cause fission. Um, and that appears to be what happened at Oklo. And the way we know that um, is because not just the depleted uranium, but there were also fission products that only occur in nuclear reactors in the proportions that they were there. Okay. So it's very good evidence that there was a nuclear reactor there. Um, okay. it'd be, it'd be, I, I struggle to imagine another way that that could have happened. 
I mean, somebody that, buried some uranium there that had already been in a reactor or something. Yeah, like that. That, that, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we've got this phenomena, and it requires 2 billion years worth of decay to get to where we see it now. Okay. So this is where we're going to tie it back into young Earth creationism. You've got 2 billion year, years worth of decay, but only 6,000 years for it to have happened in. Right? So that's a problem. You know, it's you a can't... big problem if there's only been here for 6,000 years, right? <laughs> right. You can't have you can't have this uranium, which is older than the universe. Um, yeah. So one of the ways in which uh, not just this phenomena, but the phenomena of requiring more decay than you could get in 6,000 years, one of the ways that that's addressed by creationists is they say, well, maybe things decayed faster in the past. Like right now, they decay at this certain rate and we can measure it and everything and everything's great. But you weren't there so many thousand years. What if it was faster? You know, and then you could get all this decay to happen um, in that short time frame, time, time frame, time frame. Uh, and yeah, no problem. Boom. Problem solved. Right. Wrong. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that, that may solve the problem for the timeline, but it creates another problem. Right. Right. It definitely yeah. causes some other problems uh, <laughs> because you can't just do that in a vacuum. You can't just increase. So remember how I was talking about how like radioactivity is like releasing heat and radiation. If you decrease the half-life, you increase the radioactivity by definition. How radioactive something is, is that's the definition of the half-life. They are the same thing. They're just two different ways of looking at exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. So if you make it decay faster, if you make it so you reduce its half-life, it's going to decay faster. You're going to have more disintegrations per second, right? Which means you're releasing more heat and more radiation. Um, so they've got two billion years worth of heat and radiation that they need to cram into 6,000 years. Uh, and that causes problems. So if everyone's caught up, uh, this is where the math comes in, but I promise I'm going to keep it light and it's not going to be very confusing. <laughs> okay, so if there's no questions in class, now we get to the fun part. We're going to melt the earth now. Okay. Uh, so let me show my other screen. We're going to talk about uh, how much decay we would need. Okay. So uh, this is the formula for radioactive decay. This just says how many things you have now is equal to how many things you used to have times this stuff, which is how fast it decays and how long it's been decaying. That's all it is, okay? Um, this is how the decay would look like if you put it on a curve. These are how many atoms have decayed in 2 billion years time using the current rates, but it doesn't matter because that's the number of atoms, whether they did it in 6,000 years or 2 billion years, whatever. That's the number of atoms that you would need to have decayed, right? And so what you do is you figure out how many atoms are going to decay. Okay. How many of the uh, relevant atoms, uranium, thorium, potassium, 40 in the crust. Um, you determine how much there is right now. You determine, um, then you can back calculate to how much would have decayed. And then you can calculate the energy for that decay. Okay. So it's pretty simple. Here's a bunch of stuff about the earth and the prevalence of things. And I'm going to, uh, if you look in the video description, calculations and stuff are in a Google doc, which are way easier to read. So if you want to check my work, you want to whatever, just go down there um, and you can follow along. It'd be a lot easier for you uh, because that's there. I'm not going to pause a bunch and read all this to you, uh, but there's stuff about uh, uranium. What it comes down to is this is how many atoms you'd need to decay, but there's more because uh, if you decay uranium, right, it doesn't just like stop there because not only is the uranium not happy with its life, 
the thing it decays to is also not happy with its life. And that thing is also not happy. And it just keeps decaying. And every step along the way until it gets to lead, which is stable, uh, decays and has uh, half-life and releases radiation and heat. So once I figured all this out, then I had to go to the chart of the nuclides and uh, go through the entire decay chain, which this is the decay chain for the three different isotopes. You can see how it bounces around the whole way. And there's different pathways because it has a probabilistic distribution of going one pathway to the other. So you have to like weight it and do a bunch of fancy math, which again, on the Google Doc, go check that out. So I summed all of that up. I did all that work, okay, to figure out like how many atoms would decayed, all of their daughters, all the way down to lead. This is an example of what that looks like. And what that left with was this, the final answer of how much heat would be released in the crust. More is happening down in like the mantle, but this mm -hmm. is like the crust itself. Uh, yeah, uh, I was able to provide these calculations to Luca, uh, who was able to use it to great effect in his discussion with McQueen. Uh, McQueen is one of the re uh, the resident experts on this problem. Uh, I'm he's a really nice guy. McQueen is a is a really fun guy to talk to. I'm not sure he has a lot of expertise on this particular problem, but he's a good guy nonetheless. Anyways, uh, so I did these calculations, and you get 0.5 times 10 to the 30th joules that are being released. And as a back, as like a check on myself, I used uh, some uh, some measurements that were taken using neutrino emissions from below. So like when these one of the things being released by these decays are these particles that don't interact with matter very much, called neutrinos. Um, and by seeing how many neutrinos there are, um, they can like determine how much decay is happening. The people at Camland did that, and I checked my calculations against theirs, and I got within 6%, which I think is pretty darn good for some, like, Excel back-of-the-envelope stuff I was doing. I'm pretty happy with it. <laughs> What's a joule? <laughs> a joule is a unit of energy. Uh, cool. You've heard of a watt? Like yes. You've got a, okay. A watt is joules per second. Got you. Right. So if you were releasing one... Uh, all of this in on second, you'd have 0.5 times 10 to the 30th watts. Cool. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, so that's how much energy is released. Uh, and that, that number probably doesn't mean a whole lot, right? It's it's a big number. There's like a, a exponential there, but like, what does it mean? You know, it's like telling me how many millimeters are in an inch. I don't know. It's like, yeah, you don't know who cares. What's what's the big deal? Yeah. So uh, if you imagine physically what's happening, right, you've got most of the, uh, the the crust is actually enriched, meaning it has more radioactive material as opposed to the rest of the earth. Mm -hmm. So like about a third of the radio of like the uranium thorium stuff is in the crust, right? That very thin layer. And so the heat is released there. Heat always flows from hot to cold, right? Never the other way around. You don't uh, th you don't open your air conditioned if it's a hot summer day and you open your door, your house is not going to get colder. <laughs> it's yeah. going to get hotter, right? If you ever seen the movie Backdraft, you know what happens when you open the doors. Right. So uh, the mantle is hotter than the crust. It they darn well better be because it's like molten down there. You know, if, if we're allowing the crust to heat up to the point where it's like the temperature of the mantle, you've got big problems already, right? And so that heat is going to, there's only one other way for it to go, and that's up through the crust, through the water, the flood, and now we're back into Noah. 
Okay, so uh, the reason I, I mentioned Noah is because um, uh, maybe I can explain the units of measurement better. Uh, so, well, Newtons is a measurement of force. Um, so like if I'm pushing something, that's that's force, right? Joules is a measure of energy, uh, which is for all intents and purposes here, heat. Um, you can do a calculation to convert your joules to calories if you wanted to make it more palatable, I guess. Um, it doesn't really matter like what precisely a joule is. I'm going to give you like more concrete terms to fasten to it. It's just a unit of energy. Um, so back to the creationist model. So they, they know that they need to have this crazy thing happen. They need all of this decay to happen very in a very short period of time. So what they will often do is say, well, it happened during the flood. Noah's flood, which covered the world in water and was a big catastrophe. Um, that's when all of this crazy physics stuff was happening. And since right? we use water to cool nuclear reactors and stuff, bingo, bingo, right? Right. And it can, you've, sure, you've got all this radio, radioactive stuff down below, but you've got all that water between him and, and Noah. No problem. Problem solved, right? Well, you did have 6,000 years to do this. Now you've got like a year, right? So now we're cramming 2 billion years worth of decay into one year. So what does that look like? Well, it's going to start in the granite, right? So you can do a calculation to see what the temperature increase would be in granite. Uh, it is um, the name of the formula. It's a specific heat calculation. Um, and I'm seeing if I have it on my presentation so I can show someone. I don't. It's in the Google Doc. So you basically use the, uh, the material. It has a property of like how many degrees Celsius it would go up for every joule it, it accepts, right? Now, uh, this is assuming you don't go through a phase change or whatever, but if you run that calculation and you said, okay, it's going to take all of this heat, what would happen? Your granitic crust of the earth would be 27,000 degrees Celsius, but you could just say Kelvin because at that point it doesn't matter. They're basically <clears> the same <throat> thing. Uh, for scale... The surface of the sun, let me just look this up real quick. The surface of the sun is 5,600 degrees Celsius. Okay. Last time I checked, there wasn't any water on the sun. No, uh, don't think there is. And so this, so obviously the, the granite would not actually get to 27,000 degrees. It would vaporize long before that, right? right? Right. So, but if you're to the point where you're vaporizing the crust, you've got problems, right? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> But what about all that water, right? You got all that water. Well, water also has, you know, only so much heat that it can take, right? Uh, that amount of heat, even if you take all of the water that would like cover the earth, like all the water that is on the earth, plus some extra, multiply that by 10, like give them just an order of magnitude, and you're less than 1% of the total energy to boil the oceans. Like all of the water that Noah's boat is in is vapor and superheated steam. And we're still like nine, still got 99% of the heat to go, right? <laughs> uh, so it's a problem. It would like melt the earth. Um, other mechanisms they use to try to explain this are things like hypercanes. Like what if you had like these huge hurricanes that were like drawing heat up? Cooling fans that are like shooting right. heat out of the atmosphere, right? There's all kinds <clears throat> of problems with that. First of all, uh, where's the heat going? It's going into the atmosphere still. Like it doesn't like have a fucking <laughs> magic portal to space, you know, yeah. like that's, that's not how that works. But even if it did have a magic portal to space, I did the calculations for that too. Uh, and if you had hypercanes and it, so they call hurricanes in their, their parlance, 
hypercanes are like super mega hurricanes, right? And so even if you said the hypercanes are 10 times as powerful as hurricanes and they covered the entire earth, 100% of the earth's surface is hypercanes. And these hypercanes are going for the entirety of Noah's flood all year. It's, it's a wall to wall, 365, 24 seven hypercane bonanza. <laughs> That amount of heat, uh, I'm, I'm going to show you because it's very simple. You can just, um, you can just plug. This is how uh, it looks like. You've got the water vapors collecting. It's condensing, uh, which there's a latent heat of condensation that gets released to the atmosphere in reality. But let's say it beams to space, right? And then you've got that water cycle. Um, this is how that would work. The amount of heat uh, times the amount of waterfall that's going down over the area times the latent heat of uh, condensation times the time of you're doing this, okay? And you just plug in all of those numbers and you get 0.02% of the total heat you need to release. And that's for covering the entire world in hypercanes for a year, right? Like that isn't, <clears throat> that's like putting a Band-Aid on a, that's not even putting a Band-Aid on, that's like- Not even. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's like like thinking you might have a band aid one day, you know. It's like, like I I know about band aids. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you could yeah. you could have a hundred <clears throat> different methods equally as powerful as these absurdly powerful hypercanes, and you still wouldn't scratch the surface of the amount of heat you need to release. Um, so yeah, it's just not enough. But but it gets even worse, right? Because that it's not just things that are happening below the the the, the water. People, you like to think of like radiation as something that happens far away, but you are radioactive. So I, so is everybody. Um, we all have radioactive isotopes in our body. Carbon-14 is one that people are probably familiar with, but uh, potassium-40 is in your blood right now. A, a portion of all potassium is radioactive, and you have potassium in your body, so a portion of that potassium is also radioactive. And I don't care how much water there is there's no amount of water outside the boat that's going to protect noah from the potassium in his bloodstream right yeah true, true and that potassium if you do two billion years worth of decay is enough to <laughs> boil him alive from the inside out you know like the instant this gets kicked on he falls over dead because he's like <laughs> cooking from the inside out but wait oh, there's wow. more like it gets even worse because all we've been talking about is heat right like all this time, the only thing we've been talking about for this radiation is heat, but radiation also releases radiation, you know, like the, the scary stuff that people are afraid of the, with nuclear plants for. Yeah, right? the stuff you see in movies where they can put the suits on. and the... Exactly. <clears throat> right. It's also releasing that. So if you do calculation, and this one's pretty easy because you can just like, how much uh, radiation do you get from your food each year? You can go to the NRC and they have calculations for that um, and just do two billion years worth. You know, because that's how much you're getting, right? It's just the, the two billion years. You, it's not a linear scale per se, precisely. You'll get, a, you'll be a right. little bit off, but it's close. It's you a rough get, estimate. You can yeah. get kind of order magnitude if you do that. Um, the amount of of so the the unit I'm going to use here is millisieverts. Again, don't worry about the unit. Just for some scale, like a radiation worker, the limitation for their dose is 50 millisieverts for a year. That's your scale. Okay, the lethal dose is about 8,000. Noah's dose that he would be taking every single hour from his food and water is 78 grand. Like almost 10 times a lethal dose straight to the organs every hour. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. 
Uh, yeah, so yeah, uh, Luca's correct here. More like uh, he'll explode in a spectacular fashion while the boiling water. It's a good point because he wouldn't just like fall over dead. All that 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 boiled water now has pressure on the inside, and it's going to be like the body is not a very good pressure cooker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah oh, that would not be pleasant. Uh, so is this so- an example of somebody just trying to come up with an ad hoc explanation for something, and then without thinking the ramifications? Yeah, so this is this is an example of coming up with an explanation for the problem right in front of you mm-hmm. and not applying the broader implications. Now, to some creationist credit, like the more professional organizations, I'm thinking like Answers in Genesis or well, not Answers in Genesis, really ICR, like the the Snelling, Andrew Snelling, who's um, one of the big names in creationist field. He's done some calculations on this and to their credit, they acknowledge that the heat problem is not something they have an answer to. And, and many of them will say it re- may require a miracle, which fair enough. Like God, you already powerful. have a miracle because it's raining waters are coming from somewhere, right? right. Like the <clears throat> deep yeah. and all that stuff. Like, yeah. like fair enough. Like you, you're, you're talking about a very supernaturally charged world. God intervened. Okay. Uh, but I think the problem comes with uh, the, the drive to want to avoid invoking that because that's, it's almost like a cop out, you know, because right. if God can just use, use, magic for lack of a better term uh and any then why bother examining any of this right it's just all be magic you know yeah but then where does that stop seems like in my experience young earth creationists really try to hit that they are being scientific that they're using science uh, almost as a form of credibility but also to try to maybe persuade some of the more scientifically literate people to come into their side too and i mean i think for at least some portion of the you know the creationists they just they honestly want to to know the 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 world they want to like answer these questions and science is a way to do that right that's that was my attitude as a young creationist but the problem is that there's there's some tension there you know you, the scientific method doesn't allow for miracles because if if you can just invoke a miracle whenever you want to answer your question well like like what are you doing? You know, just <laughs> just say it was a miracle and go home, you know? Yeah. Uh, so they, they, on the one hand, there's a tension where they want to avoid invoking miracles, but you get painted, you get painted into these corners um, just but because you're constrained. You're constrained to, it can only be 6,000 years. Well, that has implications. That's some, something's got to give. At some point, something's got to give, you know? So, uh, but you also, on the other hand, one, another explanation is, uh, well, God created the isotopes and their current prevalences in the earth as they are the appearance of age or something like that right exactly yeah. and <clears throat> the line usually goes something like um well adam like when he was created he was created as a fully grown man and like if you were to look at him he'd appear to be i don't know 30 however many years old um but he would have in fact only been a couple days old right so the earth maybe it's like that but i think if you do that um you've run into a situation where god is deceptive uh, because he created it, he wouldn't. There's nothing forcing God to make all of the uranium across all the world to have 0.7 percent enrichment. Like there, right. It could, you could easily vary. You're God. You could make it all over the place, right? Uh, but if he made things the way they are, then he made it such that someone looking at the rocks and just doing the math with the physics, you know, just without knowing what he did, would come to a wrong conclusion and have no way of telling, right? It, it it seems not that far off from like last Tuesdayism, 
He could have yeah. created the Earth Class <clears throat> Tuesday with all of the memories. All the memories are in her brain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There'd be no way to tell different. But like, why do that? Like, it's, I don't find solipsism personally very attractive. <laughs> so. Yeah. And uh, if God is supposed to be good, God is supposed to be, you know, loving. Uh, it doesn't seem very good or loving to effectively lie to his creations, yeah. right? Deception seems outside of the character of most descriptions of God. So, Right. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, last well, Tuesday. so <laughs> Yeah. So I, I think you, you, you're kind of, you're, you're stuck between, on the one hand, you want to use science, you want to avoid invoking magic, you want to like actually learn about the world. But on the other hand, you've got these very rigid, like this rigid conception of what the truth has to be. You've started with your conclusion. You're working backwards from there, but there's disconnect. Now, uh, I struggled with this myself when I was um, deconverting, and I eventually just had to decide to set aside those constraints. Like, mm -hmm. I okay, I'm just going to ignore what I think I know, what the the conclusion I already believe that the Earth is six thousand years old. I'm just going to put that aside, and I'm just going to look at the evidence. And if the Earth is in fact only six thousand years old, the evidence will tell me, right? Like it should, it, it should, right? The, the truth shall set me free. So if I just look at the evidence and follow it wherever it leads, it will lead me to the truth. And if I'm right, then it'll lead me right back to where I was. But if I'm wrong, I want to know. And I so I guess, yeah, I mean, I mean, I want to know if I'm wrong too, but obviously this stuff, the math is way beyond my skills, and my abilities. And I imagine it's beyond the skills and abilities for most people. Right. But yeah. when presented to it in, in the manner that what you did, I can see like, yes, this is definitely a problem and I have no, I'm not going to go and learn uh, all the skills needed to come up with that conclusion, but I can stuff. If I was a young earth creationist presented this, how do I still maintain that belief? Do I just have to keep coming up with explanations or um, I don't, that's where, that's what boggles my mind. So I, I don't want to speak to a community that I'm no longer a part of, you know, I can say that often now I think it's fair when presented with this, you don't necessarily immediately change your mind, right? You know, yeah. you have to take some time. There's a process. Yeah. I'm just some random engineer on the internet. What do I know? You know, <laughs> but, uh, uh, often what I see is that they're just constantly looking for that next thing. Uh, George Bond and McQueen, who we mentioned earlier, um, I presented these things to them. They don't have an answer. Um, and they, they like, come up with vague explanations like, well, there's these blobs under the mantle that are like hotter than the rest of the mantle. So maybe the heat went there, ignoring that that undermines the second law of thermodynamics because heat goes from hot to cold, not cold to hot, right? right. Uh, so you can't use the mantle as your heat sink because it's hotter than the thing you want to cool down. Uh, yeah, so uh, honestly, the way that they answer it, you can go the professional route, which is just to say, exotic physics or supernatural causation we don't know which fair enough uh or you can go the george bond route and just say we have an answer and we have calculations are super awesome we're not going to tell you you don't have the calculations but i promise they're great you know you know you can go that, can go that route i guess a lot, lot of people are saying they're the best calculations ever yeah the best just huge huge huge, huge calculations um yeah so that those are the routes i think that are open to you and it, it's a fair point like you brought up uh, the calculations I did, while they're not super complicated, I wouldn't expect somebody who has like never studied nuclear anything to like know 
to get from A to B? Like, how how would you know like what calc like what math to to use? You know, to do the bigly calculations. Like they said. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Luca hit the nail on the head. The, the SFT brain trust is to keep things long and complex and no one to follow. If you've ever seen SFT's channel, there's like the the streams are like no jokes. Some of them are like five hours long. I don't know how I don't know how they have the stamina for that to be honest. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, well. um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't expect some random person off the street to like know how to do these kind of kind of calculations. That's totally fair. That's why we specialize, right? That's why we right. have a scientific community. You know, that's why we've got people who spend all day thinking about these kind of things. And you know, uh, it, it seems implausible that every single one of them <laughs> is like in on the conspiracy. I'd have to be in on the conspiracy, right? Like I'd have are, to. Are you? are you? I mean, I'm not gonna. If I were, I wouldn't say I was, right? Because then they'd no. stop paying me. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well. So that's the uh, heat problem. Uh, that is just one of many, many problems with young Earth creationism. Um, uh, I think this alone should, I, in my humble opinion, should be enough to persuade someone to abandon the idea that the Earth is six thousand years old. It's just so much simpler to just. The earth is old. It's not a big deal. And, and like, that's the stance of the vast majority of Christians. Right. You don't have to give up your faith at that point. Like you can just. No, it didn't. Yeah. most Christians you run into, even in America now, but certainly globally, don't think the earth was 6,000 years old and they still go to church and take communion and pray and do yeah. all the other good Christian things you should do. Like, it's not a big deal. You know, right. the, only, the only thing it really affects as far as your faith is the understanding of like, um, inerrancy or like a literal interpretation of the bible right so like it's, you'd have to make a big adjustment in like how you view yeah. scriptures and the old testament but at the same time it doesn't really affect much of the practical side of christianity so for me when i was a young earth creationist i had been brought up to believe that if the the bible was not literally true then faith was dead and i think that that's a big problem it's a it's not it's not a good strategy because you're pitting like your very specific interpretation of this book against, and you're betting all in on that one yeah. interpretation. And if it's wrong, you've told everyone, if it's wrong, you should not be a Christian. Yeah. I'm not saying every young earth creationist believes that. That's what I was told though. Um, it, and bro, it's not, that's <laughs> not a winning strategy, you know? So this is a more of a personal question, but when you, on your deconversion or your, you know, whatever you want to call it, did you ever flirt with old earth creationism or did you go straight to? Yeah. I kind of like ran the whole like rainbow gamut of Christianity on my departure <laughs> from it. So I started like young earth creationist. I was like, Oh man, the earth isn't young. Turns out. Okay. Uh, I guess it's old. Like maybe I'm an old earth creationist. I was like, Oh, well maybe God doesn't seem necessary for that. Okay. Maybe I'm a theistic evolutionist. Oh man. doesn't seem like necessary <laughs> for that either. Okay. Uh, we'll back up further. You know, like the that, domino that was, started uh, falling. Yeah. That was my process but I'm only one person. Not everybody has to take that process. You know, that there are people that I respect greatly who believe that God is, they're the Christians uh, and that they, that they don't think the earth was 6,000 years old. So I don't like, I don't think those two things are necessary. And also I think you miss some of the poetry of the Bible by interpreting it in this rigid way. Mm -hmm. Right. Like uh, you've studied the Bible way more than I have, but um, you know, if we allow it to speak to us the way it was written, like, let the, the voice of the authors speak to us. I think you get a lot, uh, a much more beautiful story. So I saw a great ex uh, explanation of like the Genesis story, like why, why a flood? 
why why was it like that right why drown the earth and the explanation i got which <clears throat> made a lot of sense was the original hebrew cosmology was you had this the flat earth and you had uh the firmament which were water like literal water above and below in space like like and when so when god is looking over the like he's looking over the chaotic uh waters originally and he like literally parts them to make the earth dry like he's like like pulling them little, right little air bubble right in the middle yeah exactly right he, he he parts the firmament above and the firmament below right and so that's the earth he created and then later when he was saddened because people were like sinning and like his creation was going to shit he is like you know what i'm going to return things to the way they were and so waters came up from above above and below because he's returning it to the chaos it was before that's why it's a flood because it's restoring the creation to its original form because he's kind of like wiping it away. Right. And that's a much more poetic, like beautiful. Well, I still think it's a effing horrible thing for him <laughs> to do, but at yeah. least it like makes sense, you know, like right. uh, there's like the, there's some poetry there, I think. Yeah. Uh, that Especially you if you're taking it from a non-literal, like, right. <clears throat> but yeah, I, I agree with you there. So, yeah. Hmm. So I think we've said all we need to say. Uh, in summary, if creationists were correct, young Earth creationists who take to this particular model, I will I should say there's more than one model of young Earth creationism. They all have their own flavors of wrong. So this per, these particular calculations apply mainly to catastrophic plate tectonics and the people who want to cram uh, radiation two billion or really four billion years of radiation into a year. Other models have different problems. Uh, but if the people who subscribe to this model, which is pretty popular, were right, then Noah would explode like a popcorn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, probably pretty fast, tasty. too. <laughs> very, yeah. very fast. Probably not as tasty, though. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So do all the YouTube things like comment, subscribe, you know, all that sort of stuff. If you thought it was cool, if you didn't think it was cool, uh, let us know uh, what we what you think. If we missed something and tell us if there's something you want us to tackle in the future. We're always looking for new videos. Anything to do with any claim doesn't have to be religious, whatever. We'll, we'll do whatever you want. We're here for you for the low, low price of absolutely nothing. Just hit that <laughs> like button. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So you got anything else? Nope. That's it. Cool. Well, thanks for joining, guys. And remember, till next time, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out. Oh, uh, Wait, there's more. Sorry, one thing. <laughs> I, I forgot. We're upcoming. We're talking to an atheist who lives in Africa. Uh, yeah. And he has a very similar uh, experience to us. So we think that's going to be really cool. Uh, I think we're going to be doing that should be posted next week. So look out for that. Yeah. Some cross-cultural contamination there. Anyway, you've always got reason to doubt. <laughs> Peace out. <laughs>